Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this gospel, for the faithfulness of John, for all that he has suffered in his life, Father, at the end of the first century. We know he was faced with uh, many trials, many people who opposed him, as all the apostles did. And yet, Father, he was given such great revelation and a knowledge of the Son that few men had, and you let him, Father, present that to us in this gospel in such a unique way. And we thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege to study it here 2,000 years later and to uh, see it unfold anew because the power of the Spirit to make the Word living and active is such a, such a blessing to all of us, Father. Thank you for that. And uh, let us have our hearts attentive to the text this, this evening, Father. Let us all consider what you have placed here. Let it be a personal revelation, Father, something in which we see the words and understand the intent you have for our life and what we've been reading even as we understand what happened back in that day. And I I thank you, Lord, for the turnout for those who come faithfully each week, even when they would uh, perhaps feel better at home or have had other things to do. But, Lord, you've given them this uh, burden to be here, and that's a blessing to a teacher and to those who they fellowship with. Thank you for that. And may this night, Father, be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as I said, we return to chapter 2 of John's Gospel. We're going to pick up immediately after Jesus has performed that first miracle that we looked at last week, turning water into wine. And there's really no need for more introduction than that. Look at verse 11. John declares this is the first of Jesus' signs. He says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I want to stop with just one verse because this sets up an interesting principle, one that's going to come up quite often in this Gospel. Starting even with the word sign, that's important because it reminds us of the purpose in Jesus's miracles. Jesus performed these supernatural displays and miracles such like we see here with the water turning into wine for a purpose. And that purpose was to give evidence that he was the Messiah. Each time he performed a miracle, he was giving a sign to the world to support his claims, to demonstrate that his claims were legitimate. The most compelling sign he ever performed was the sign of his own resurrection, the sign of Jonah. He calls it in the Gospels. That's why we said last week that when Mary was asking Jesus to do this miracle, she was wrong because she was seeking for the miracle when there was no message to deliver to this audience. She wanted it apart from the message. And Jesus reminded her the time had not yet come for him to begin making public declarations to the world that he was the Messiah. And therefore, he wasn't prepared to do the sign either because they go hand in hand. Nevertheless, as we studied, he obeyed his mother out of respect for her turning the water into wine. But as we noted, he never actually called attention to himself in the process of doing that miracle. So he never made any kind of declaration. He never let that sign become evidence of his claims to be Messiah. For all that anyone knew, it just happened to be the wine that the head waiter had prepared for the event. The only ones who knew, we're told, were his disciples, as verse 11 said. His disciples knew that he had done what he did. And look at the effect. They believed in him. Now, what exactly did they believe? Well, they believed in his claims to being Messiah, but of course, almost just as assuredly, they didn't appreciate what Messiah meant. They didn't understand it was God incarnate. That was something they learned only after his death and resurrection. But nevertheless, the sign had its intended effect in their hearts, reinforced for them the truth of his claims. Despite being the wrong time for Jesus to announce himself, it was still significant that his first miracle involved wine at a wedding feast. The Bible uses a wedding feast as a picture quite often, to represent the arrival of the kingdom, the arrival of the Messiah into his kingdom. Now, obviously, this wedding was not the wedding feast of the bride or the wedding feast of Christ, but still, 
It's interesting that his choice of a miracle to begin his public ministry would be the one that is so telling. Furthermore, it's interesting that he picks a miracle that brings this abundance of great joy to the wedding party. That's another picture of his ministry to the world. There will be great joy at the arrival of the kingdom, not only for Israel, but also for us Gentiles. And that joy begins for us even before the kingdom arrives. For though we haven't seen the kingdom arrive in its physical form as yet, the citizenry of the kingdom is already being uh, recruited. And for us who have the spirit, there is real joy in the knowledge of Christ and in the victory of death that he won for us, victory over death, and in the promise of an inheritance in his kingdom and the knowledge of his certain return. These things are all sources of joy for the believer in a world that doesn't know such things. All right. So now John moves forward and John writes after this, meaning after the wedding, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned the tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So after the wedding, we're told Jesus and his mother and his brothers and his disciples all travel down, it says, to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is a town where Jesus will spend a considerable time during the first year of his ministry. In fact, Capernaum really becomes his home. As he begins his public ministry, and it says here that he goes down. And in fact, if you look on a map, Capernaum is northeast of Canaan. And in our parlance, we would say go up just because we look at it from the compass direction. But Jews look at it from topographical reference, from altitude, if you will. So they're looking at the fact that Capernaum is a higher altitude city than Canaan. So he has to go up. It reminds us that they walk everywhere. And when you drive, you don't think about these things. When you walk, you definitely think about the fact that you're going up. This town in the Galilee becomes the center for his ministry. And in fact, I believe what you see happening right here is he is moving his home from Nazareth to Capernaum for the duration of his ministry. In fact, Jesus is accompanied, we notice, by his earthly family. That would suggest that they're all moving to Capernaum at this time. And you notice Joseph's absence. Joseph died before Jesus's earthly ministry began. We can safely assume that from two details in Scripture. First, the fact that Jesus appoints John to care for Mary at the cross indicates that she was a widow. She had no one to care for her once her son had died. Secondly, Jesus is the last man, we're told in Scripture, to hold the priestly office of the order of Melchizedek. That priesthood was handed down in a line of succession from Adam to Jesus. And it can only transfer to the next man in succession at the death of the current office holder. Because Jesus never dies... He holds the title forever. So he is the priest in the order of Melchizedek eternally. But before he inherited it, it was owned by his father, Joseph. And Joseph could not give it to his son until Joseph died because it can only be inherited upon the death of the prior office holder. So Joseph had to pass away before Jesus could become the priest and inherit his priestly duties under the order of Melchizedek. Now, you can go to the website. We have an interesting article on the succession of the order of Melchizedek in Scripture, including identifying the man that Abraham met, the man who held the order at the time of Abraham's life when he met him in the desert and paid tithes to him after destroying Telomer and the kings from the east, the five kings from the east. So if you're interested in more of that, please go online and you can read more. Meanwhile, 
That explains why you only see the family minus Joseph making this trip. Then it says, after spending a few days in Capernaum, Passover comes. John explains to the Gentile reader, to you and I, that this is the Feast of the Jews. That's an interesting comment. Passover, the Feast of the Jews. You wouldn't have to say that if either the audience was primarily Jewish, which of course it isn't, or if the early church still practiced Passover, which clearly they didn't which is further evidence of that the church being Gentile did not continue in the practice of the Jewish law, the Jewish feasts and the like. The timing of this being Passover places us in the spring of Jesus's first year of ministry, which is A.D. 30. We'll see that later in the text. That also tells us that his baptism and his first week of ministry happened in the late winter, early spring time frame. Looking at Passover for a minute, Passover is one of three feasts on the Jewish calendar, in which every adult Jewish male was required, often accompanied by their families, to make a pilgrimage down to Jerusalem to observe the feast. As many as three million Jews descend upon Jerusalem during this week every year. As Jesus enters the temple grounds in the day of Herod's temple, you have an elaborate structure that's well beyond the boundaries of what was prescribed in the law. The law prescribed a small tent-like building called the tabernacle and then an outer fence made of fabric that enclosed it, and that was it. But that wasn't ornate enough for the Jews in Jesus' day and for Herod, so he creates a much more elaborate version of that and included a larger open area courtyard or portico that surrounded that inner one that was prescribed by the law. And that outer one enclosed a space that was never prescribed by the law, by God. And so it became known as the court of the Gentiles because it was an area that Gentiles could go into for it was not formally part of the tabernacle or the temple. And yet because it was now made a part of it, it was considered an extra court. And that court is the one that's in view here. This court of the Gentiles surrounding the building has been transformed into a merchant's bazaar with all this commerce, as you can see. And there's two principal forms of commerce taking place during the week of Passover in this outer courtyard of the Gentiles. First, money is being changed. Now, much in the same way that we will change our money at an airport before or after we go somewhere overseas to a foreign country, that's the practice you see taking place here for the Jewish worshipers. Because they came into the temple bearing Roman coins, which was the only kind of money accepted in the Roman Empire outside these walls. And the Romans, of course, now occupied Judea and enforced that rule. But when you came into the temple as a Jew, the only money accepted by the Jewish authorities inside the temple grounds were Jewish coins. They rejected the Roman coin and they did so because they said it bore the relief of Caesar, the image of Caesar. And as such, it was an idol and they were not going to violate the first commandment by having idols. And so that's how they stipulated that the money was not valid. So a worshiper had to come in and exchange all their Roman money for Jewish money in order to use that money in the temple to make a tithe or to do anything else they needed to do in terms of activities of the temple. The business of changing money in that setting, therefore, had become a major source of income for the priests who ran the temple and managed the temple operations. Secondly, the other form of commerce that you see going on here is worshipers needed to purchase a sacrificial animal. When a family came into the temple for Passover, they were coming with the intent to sacrifice the lamb that's required as part of the Passover feast. And it was often impractical for a family to travel the many miles they had to to reach Jerusalem with the animal in tow. They risked the animal getting sick, being damaged along the way, just the effort required to bring it. It was much easier for them to just bring money. And then as they come into the temple, they would purchase the animal that they intended to sacrifice, whether it was an ox or whether it was a dove or whether it was a lamb, etc. 
And so they came and they bought the animal right there on site. Now, I like to think of this as buying food at the airport. You're not going to get the best price, are you? Because you're a captive audience. And you can be sure the animals in this temple court were priced accordingly. You needed one. They knew you need one and they had one. So that was another source of profit for the temple priests. But it got worse than that. Because even the families that did choose to bring their own animals into the temple were still getting fleeced by the priests, so to speak. The priests were required to inspect. The priests were required to inspect these lambs before they could be sacrificed, because, as you know, in keeping with the law, only a spotless lamb could be sacrificed. Now, spotless simply means no evident defects. But, of course, the priests would go to extraordinary lengths to inspect every lamb certain that they could find a disqualifying defect. And wouldn't you know it, the priests always found something wrong with every worshiper's lamb. If your lamb was disqualified, how were the worshipers then to meet the obligations of Passover? Well, fortunately, the priests had a solution. They offered to take that defective lamb as a trade-in toward a new spotless lamb that they would sell the worshipers from their lamb table. Only after you changed your money, of course, at the money changers table first. So the priests made money on the sale of these certified spotless lambs. And then when the next unsuspecting family comes into the temple bearing their soon to be found defective lamb, they would likewise be directed over to buy their replacement spotless lamb. And the lamb that that family would purchase was none other than the defective lamb that was traded in moments earlier by the other family. In other words, it was a scam. It was a scam run by religious leaders to make money off of worshipers. Not much has changed today, has it? As a result of all this commerce taking place in the temple, it would have been literally impossible if you were a Gentile worshiper. And yes, there were Gentiles, proselytes, who had come to know the living God of Israel as God, and they had come with the intent, perhaps on this week, to worship. You know of the example, perhaps, from Acts chapter 8, when Philip encounters the eunuch who's returning from worshiping, and as he's coming out from Jerusalem, he meets Philip on the road, and he's reading Isaiah, and you know probably the rest of the story. Well, he's an example that there were Gentile worshipers. And for them, the only place they could go was the court of the Gentiles, the outer court, that we're calling the court of the Gentiles, was there for the reason that a Gentile could approach, at least to that extent, and worship the living God. That was the closest point any Gentile could get to the God of Israel. That's why Paul described Gentiles who are now a part of the church, you and I, as those whose prior worship experience was from a distance. He says in Ephesians 2.12 and 13, he says, remember that you, speaking to us Gentiles, you were at that time, before the, the Lord, You were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he's using that imagery of far and near in reference to how the temple itself, by its very structure, created a barrier for the Gentiles and kept them at a length, at a distance from God. They were far off in that sense. But now by the blood of Christ, Jews and Greeks are united into the one covenant. So it would be impossible for a Gentile worshiper who came into the temple on this week to approach the Lord in a quiet, reflective, worshiping manner, or even really to approach at all because he comes upon a scene in which it's nothing but a flea market. It's noisy, it's loud, it's crowded. It's not a place of worship. It's not a house of prayer for that person. 
Seeing the priests operating all of this in direct violation of their own code in the law made Jesus upset. And he's reacting probably, among other things, to Leviticus 19.30, where it says, You shall keep my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. This is anything but reverence for the sanctuary. So Jesus finds some hemp or some other suitable material. And I imagine he probably sits down somewhere unnoticed, quietly goes about his business, weaving it together into a whip. It's going to take some time. Nobody notices what he's doing. His disciples are probably wondering what he's doing. Undoubtedly, with so many animals around, he probably could have found a way to borrow someone's whip instead of making his own. So the question comes, why does he take time to make his own whip? The Lord's preparing to act here in judgment, in defense of his father's house. And when the Lord judges men, he does it on his own terms, according to his own power and authority. And I think constructing his own instrument of judgment here reinforces that. To a degree, it's suggesting this is God's authority at work, not through the agency or even the mechanisms of men. So I don't know, maybe it took him half an hour, maybe an hour, maybe half the day, for all we know, sitting there quietly making this thing, probably not drawing any attention. And finally, the cord's ready, and then the fun begins. And if you've seen movies of this, then you have a scene in your head that's going to be framed largely by somebody else's imagined set of circumstances by the director and what they imagine. You have to clear that from your mind for a minute and try to imagine a Christ who is fully man and fully God. I like to think he must have walked up to the first table of money changers and in a calm manner, probably unannounced for what's the point announcing wouldn't have done any good. And he simply raises his arm and he starts driving them out, knocking them about the head and shoulders with this whip. They don't know it's coming until it hits them. And then suddenly it's pandemonium. You can just imagine the scene as he just starts running after people, chasing them with a whip. Somewhere in the corner, there's temple security, you know, saying we've got a situation here, we've got a situation. Soon, the other merchants figure out what he's doing. And then I have to imagine they're all running from him. They're not waiting for him to finally get a good shot on him. They're already moving in mass to get out of the space. After he's driven them all out, he goes after the animals and he drives them out. And that's probably a fairly easy task. The animals are afraid. They'll move quickly. Then he goes back and now he's got an empty courtyard, more or less. And then he starts turning tables over. He pours the money out on the ground. I think that's to emphasize the worthlessness of that money in comparison to the value of God's glory in his temple. And then in a moment of compassion, you have to see it this way. In a moment of compassion, he just instructs the people selling doves to walk out. I think that's because if he had done it with violence, he would have set the doves free and that would have been destroying their property, which he doesn't intend to do. So he makes sure that they all leave. This is one of two times in Scripture in which Jesus does this. You may know that there's a later scene recorded actually in the synoptic Gospels where this scene is recorded. They all three record it as part of the week of Passover that leads to his crucifixion, which is three years later than this. So they all record the second of this incident. John records both. He records this one and the later one. John also records that Jesus traveled to Jerusalem for Passover all three years of his earthly ministry, as you would expect, because that's what the law required. We can only guess what Jesus did on the other two Passovers in the two years between this one and the last one. Perhaps he made an annual tradition of going in there and just whipping them all. You would think if he did that, though, by the time he comes that last week, they would have heard that this was coming and they'd be ready for him. But maybe he just did it twice. As he speaks, he tells them and us what this is all about. He says, the temple is my father's house. Now, in describing it as his father's house, he's referring, obviously, to the fact that the temple housed the Shekinah glory of God, or at least it had. The tabernacle originally held that glory in the desert, and later the glory of God descended upon the temple when he built it. But over the course of the history of Israel, as Israel sinned against God and profaned the temple, 
God's glory began to move. It moved outward from the Holy of Holies to the pinnacle of the temple and then finally out of the temple altogether at a later point. And once it departed the temple, it never came back. So at this point, when Jesus is visiting Herod's temple, the Shekinah glory of God is not in the Holy of Holies. If you had gone in as the priest did once a year to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, there was no Shekinah glory there as there had been in past generations. In fact, Herod's temple never sees the Shekinah glory of God occupy the Holy of Holies. Nevertheless, every temple, including this one, every temple that's ever been built, including the original tabernacles, Zerubbabel's temple, Solomon's temple, this temple... Every single one of them has housed the glory of God, at least at some point in its existence. On this day, it contained the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, this house is Jesus's house every bit as much as it is the Father's house. Because in the tabernacle and in Zerubbabel's and Solomon's temple, the Shekinah glory that occupied the Holy of Holies is the pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. Any time in Scripture that you see a visible manifestation of the glory of God, it is always through the second person. The second person of the Godhead is the only member of the Godhead that is ever visible to the creation at any time. The Father being all spirit, John says, no one has seen him at any time. And the Spirit being all spirit is never visible except by his effect in the world. And only through Christ do we ever see anything of the Father in visible terms. John has said that already. Paul confirms that in Colossians. So here, the glory of God in Christ enters his temple and cleanses it, at least from the standpoint of the merchants. This scene is such a striking one from what we just studied in the first half of this chapter in Cana. Think about it. In Cana, you have this quiet, hidden, compassionate Christ seeking to bring joy to a wedding party, while at the same time mollifying his earthly mother. And this scene, on the other hand, it's visceral. It's passionate, Christ in an impassioned way. He seeks to inflict painful judgment to enforce righteousness by John's choice of these two scenes. He's putting the two together here to show the fullness of what Christ's mission revolved around. Today in the world, there is still a temple, one that still houses the glory of God. The temple is the house of God. But the house of God is not where you meet on Sunday. The church building is not the house of God. It is not a substitute for the Jewish temple. The Bible says our very bodies are the temple of God since the spirit of Christ lives in us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. But our temple isn't pure any more than the temple was on this Passover day as Jesus walks into it. We need cleansing too, don't we? If we're going to be a suitable dwelling place for the Lord, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price and therefore glorify God in your body. It's tempting to reflect on the story and just imagine Jesus running around, whipping all those evil, sinful money changers, driving them out. And you take this great sense of satisfaction in the thought of it all happening, don't you? Get him, Jesus, Go. You imagine if you'd been there, you'd have been cheering them on through the whole of it. It would just feel very self-satisfying. I think we all enjoy the prospect of bad people getting their comeuppance, right? And then I have to stop myself and I have to remember I'm guilty of exactly the same thing from time to time. I have a temple and I'm supposed to guard it from sin. That is my physical body. And when the Bible speaks of us guarding our temple from sin, it's not talking about don't smoke, drink or chew or date girls that do that. If... (laughs) 
If that's what you think the Bible focuses on when it says, be holy, take care of the temple of God, if it runs to questions of what you eat or drink or smoke, if that's what you think it's talking about, then you've completely missed the point of what the Bible has to say on the issue of keeping your temple holy. It's not talking about those things because those things are the least of God's concern. He's talking about sin. He's talking about sin. Every time you choose to sin, in a sense, it's like you're inviting the money changers back into Herod's temple. Unrighteousness is setting up shop in the temple of God. Rather than making your temple a holy place for God to dwell in, you've invited in sin. And if I'm not willing to police my own temple, then I should imagine Jesus is sitting somewhere quietly weaving a little cord and eventually he's going to use it to discipline me because that's what scripture promises. Sooner or later, he picks up the scourge and he uses it to drive unrighteousness out of my temple. So given the choice of of policing my temple myself or forcing Christ into doing it for me, I think it's a little better if I were to do it myself, right, to avoid the whip. Hebrews gives us this. Jesus, it says, is willing to apply that pressure when necessary. Hebrews 12:5 says, you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges. And that's the same word that's being used to describe what Jesus does. He scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, can you imagine what his disciples were thinking, by the way, in all of this, as they watched him go about this process? Perhaps I would think a few of them were ready to bolt at this point, right? They're thinking this guy's a madman. He's crazy. They've only been with him for a very short time. And even if he isn't crazy, he's going to get us arrested. What's he think he's doing? They must have been completely beside themselves watching him at work. I think the spirit understood that they were going to think that. I think he anticipated that they would have that feeling. After all, it's a natural human response to what you see going on here. So in grace and in mercy, the spirit, it says, brought to their minds a passage of Old Testament scripture. That one that we quoted there at the very end of that passage I read. This is one that helped them understand and appreciate what Jesus was doing. And it comes out of Psalm 69. It's Psalm 69, verse 9 specifically. And I'll read you just a few additional verses to give you the context. In, in Psalm 69, 6, it, it says... May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord, God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel, because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So this is a messianic psalm. That's a description of Christ. Now, remembering this psalm, the disciples begin to put two and two together. They understand that Psalm 69 is messianic. They would have been taught that. And then they witness Jesus wrecking havoc in the temple, in his father's house, as he calls it. And the spirit in that moment brings to mind this verse, connects the dots in their head, and they come to realize that what the psalmist had been describing when he said the Messiah would have this zeal for his father's house was a description of this moment. And through that insight... It confirms for them he is the Messiah and it helps explain to them why all this stuff is happening in front of their eyes. But only the disciples understand this truth. Only they do. Only by the revelation of the Holy Spirit can they connect those dots. All the rest of the crowd saw the same crazy stuff. Certainly the guys getting whipped saw it. They all knew the psalm because by and large anyone who grew up in Israel would have been trained in the law, would have been trained in the prophets. They would have read the psalms. This stuff would not have been outside their reach. And yet... Without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the crowd was incapable 
of making a connection between the psalm that they already knew and the things they were watching go on in the courtyard in that moment. Despite its public nature and dramatic scene, Christ was not being revealed to the crowd as Messiah, apart from the disciples, because the Holy Spirit was not at work making that revelation known. And as we said, I think, in an earlier night, only by the Spirit do you gain spiritual understanding. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that a person cannot come to understand Jesus as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It's outside of the reach of human flesh. You cannot understand such things merely on the basis of natural human ability. And there is no better group on which to prove that principle at work than the Pharisees themselves in Israel. They were the most educated religious men of their day. Their standards for understanding the scripture or memorizing it go well beyond anything you've ever done in Awana or anything you've ever seen anybody do around you. It's the kind of knowledge that we can't even conceive of being possible. These men were first mentioned in John's gospel in chapter one. Remember, they were the ones behind the scene who sent those priests down to inspect John the Baptist. But now you see him appearing here for the first time in person in response to Jesus's outburst in the temple. This is the first time, as far as we can tell, that Jesus has caught their attention. He was an unknown until this moment. This is his coming out party. What a way to announce yourself. He's declaring war here, really, on the hypocrisy of these men. And he chooses to do it in Jerusalem, in the temple. What a fitting place to open up his ministry, right? And to make himself known. So from the perspective of the religious leaders, his antics would threaten to undermine their entire business model. So naturally, they're going to respond to what they've just seen. And in verse 18, the Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us? as your authority for doing these things. Jesus answers them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So these are the Pharisees, these Jews, these are the Pharisees, And for the Pharisees, the key issue in this moment was not Jesus's identity. It was his authority. In other words, they asked him to provide them a sign that told them that he had the spiritual authority to do the things he just set out to do. And it's interesting, they give no thought at all to whether or not what he did was correct. There's no question on the table about whether it was the right thing to do or not. They already had an opinion. They didn't want to be confused by the facts. They were just trying to get down to who you are. Do we have to care about you or not? Perhaps they sensed, I think, that he must have possessed some kind of authority, because otherwise, why did they even beg to give him any time at all to explain himself? They might have had some sense there was something up. In any event, they request for a sign. This act of requesting for a sign is typical of what unbelieving men have always done in response to God when he sends someone in his name. This is the classic response. It's going on today just as much as it did then. Skeptics demand that God's messengers perform a miracle or prove themselves in some sense to support or substantiate their claims. Something in the fashion of Elijah, maybe. Bring fire down from heaven or Moses and the burning bush. Something that explains to us that we can believe in you, that it is truly God at work. Why do they do this? Well, the point of it is to remove all doubt, to compel agreement, as if Jesus needed authority to point out the obvious that what was going on in the temple was wrong. But nonetheless, they want something to make the point. Now, their reaction is the polar opposite of the disciples. So one side's believing by the power of the Spirit, the other side's doubting and demanding proof. 
Until a person's eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit to see something in spiritual ways, they will react to the revelation of Christ in a similar way. They will demand that God prove himself to their satisfaction. They demand proof, for example, that the Bible is accurate before they will believe the gospel. Or they demand proof that the Trinity exists before they will believe Jesus could be God. Or they want us to reconcile evolution and creation before they can consider that Genesis is a literal account. I mean, it goes down to the smallest detail or to the whole of it. In either case, unbelievers demand that God remove the need for faith. But as Paul says, who hopes for what he already sees? God demands acceptance of his word by faith. And these Pharisees are just one more example of many that John's going to give us in this gospel of how Jesus's claims were often met with unbelief by those who should have known better, whose knowledge, whose experience in the word of God should have prepared them to recognize Jesus as Messiah. Later, Paul will explain the reality of why such learned men were the ones to most quickly dismiss Christ as who he was. And he says this in Romans chapter nine, verses 30 and 32. He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Well, why? Well, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. When he says here that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness, he's referring to the way Gentiles were strangers to the covenant and to the law. They did not pursue the scriptures. They didn't even have them. Meanwhile, the the religious elite within Israel had such things and were, quote, pursuing it, but they were pursuing it absent faith. So it got them nowhere. That's what you see playing out in John's gospel. The irony in this situation is Jesus did give them a sign. He gave them the sign of his authority. He fulfilled Psalm 69, 9. And the disciples recognized that, of course. They saw it, but the Pharisees missed it, even though that sign was dramatic. In fact, if Jesus had done something even more dramatic than that, they still would not have recognized it, because as we say, no sign can substitute for faith in the word of God. A sign can be used by God to connect the dots in the minds of the believing, thereby strengthening our faith and encouraging us along our path. But a sign can never substitute by itself for faith. You have to have faith in the Lord by his word alone if you ever hope to see and understand the Lord at work around you. As Jesus himself said in Luke 16, 31, he said to him, if you do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone raises from the dead. Christ's own resurrection did not convince people who were not otherwise gifted by faith. Nevertheless, in response to their demands, he does offer them another sign. He says, well, if you, the Pharisees, would destroy this temple, then I will gladly raise it up in three days. Obviously, if we assume this temple meant the stone building that was standing nearby, well, then the sign that he proposed was only going to perplex these guys all the more. And it did, because that's how they assumed it. They couldn't destroy the building. And even if they could destroy it, they wouldn't dare do it. They revered their stone temple. They wouldn't have destroyed it. And I think in that respect, Jesus is highlighting the fact that their heart lies in stone buildings and not in the Lord. It's a wonderful picture of what faith requires, actually. Before you can know who God is truly, you have to be willing to turn your back on the things you trust in instead. The Pharisees worshipped the law. They worshipped the sacrificial system in the temple, but they didn't worship the God who dwelled in it. And so when Jesus draws their attention to their hard hearts, the hearts that are living by law and not by faith, he's 
although speaking of his body, it's sort of a double entendre. He's making the point that you wouldn't be willing to destroy the thing that stands between you and knowing the Lord, would you? And then, of course, he's also referring to his body. This is the first of many conversations John's going to highlight. In fact, this is going to become the dominant theme we'll notice over the next series of chapters, starting next week in chapter 3. This theme in which John will record Jesus and a protagonist of some kind engaging in two conversations simultaneously, two ships passing in the night, as the phrase goes. Jesus will speak in spiritual terms to the protagonist. He'll do it in metaphors that express important spiritual truths. Meanwhile, his audience of unbelievers will remain completely clueless to everything he's saying, and they will respond in literal terms, missing the metaphors. In this case, you see the Jews responding to Jesus' words as if he was talking about the stone temple. And, of course, they exclaim incredulously, it took us 46 years to get to the point we're at right now in the building of this temple. You're not possibly going to be able to rebuild it in three days. It's a nonsense statement as far as they're concerned, right? By the way, that statement gives us a precise date for this event, precise date. History records that Herod's temple took 79 years to build, and it wasn't finished until A.D. 63. It was promptly destroyed in A.D. 70. It only stood for seven years in its finished form. So if we're only at the 46th year of construction at this point, that would make this Passover, which was April 7 of A.D. 30. They, standing at this moment in history, lacked the spiritual insight to see beyond the literal statement. Three years later, when Jesus is placed on trial by the Jewish authorities on the night before he dies on the cross, on that night of Passover, three years later, one of the accusers at the trial, you may remember, stands up testifying that Jesus had threatened to destroy the temple and then raise it again in three days. And the purpose of that accusation was to convict him for threatening to destroy the temple. Like all the accusations that were made against him on that night, it's a lie. And you can see that now because Jesus never said he would destroy the temple. He invited the Pharisees to destroy the temple. And he said if they did it, he'd rebuild it in three days. But they twisted it and made it sound like something else when they put him on trial. John explains to us that when Jesus said this temple, he was speaking of his body, his physical body, which was the temple of the living God. And you can see why Jesus would call his body the temple, because, in fact, it was in that day. As we said already, the Shekinah glory was not in Herod's temple. Where was it? It was inside his body. He was the radiance of the Father's glory in the world in that day. I think that's why the Lord never brought his glory into the temple in Herod's day, because he knew that the glory of God was not intended to occupy that building. It would occupy a far greater temple in the form of his son when his son would come into that building. That temple was destroyed, Jesus' body, that is, on the cross by those same unbelieving men. Now, here's the irony of the night. They literally did exactly what he invited them to do. It was these men who tore down the temple that he was talking about which was not the one they thought he was talking about, but it was the one he was talking about. And after three days in the grave, Jesus rebuilt that very temple they tore down. His physical body was resurrected from the dead. So as Jesus makes this statement, not only are the Pharisees blind to what's being said, but apparently so were the disciples. You notice John says it was only after the death and resurrection of Christ three years later that they came to understand what was being said in this moment also. So that would tell us that as the words are being spoken, they're just as clueless as the Pharisees are for what Jesus is saying. No doubt, when they finally did understand what he said, those words were a great comfort to them. As they mourned his loss, as they wondered, why did he die? I thought he was coming to set up his kingdom. If he can be killed by the Romans, was he really the Messiah after all? And then this starts to come to mind. That explains why Jesus chose to say what he did in this way, in this riddle, rather than saying it plainly. Because he knew that the Pharisees wouldn't understand it anyway, serves no purpose. 
And yet he also knew that as a sign to the disciples, it had its greatest power and potential for impact in a later day. And that's how signs from God work. Signs from God are always crafted to bolster the faith of the believer. As we said earlier, they're never a substitute for faith in the unbeliever. But moreover, he designs spiritual signs to have maximum impact for the intended audience. And usually that means that a sign remains hidden for some period of time, even to the believer, because it's waiting for the right moment when that understanding is most beneficial to the believer. And then when it comes, when the meaning of that sign floods into our mind by the power of the Holy Spirit, we come to recognize not only the truth of its meaning, but the power of a God who could line all of that up in advance and then hold it in preparation for us on the appointed day. The fact that it was revealed in advance and yet hidden until a later day just reinforces for us the fact that this message is truly from God. That's the power of prophecy in general. As prophecy is heard and then later understood and seen to be fulfilled, you can see the hand of God across the history of all mankind, making it all the more powerful. You're going to see this pattern also in John's gospel time and time again. Jesus will speak to an audience in spiritual terms. The unbelievers in the audience will completely miss the point, as he expects. But even some of the believers will miss the point for a time. And then later, at a time the Lord appoints, the spiritual truth of his words become evident to the believer. And in so doing, then the power of that delayed insight, that delayed revelation, is magnified in the life of the believer. There can be points in time that things are made clear to us based on events that took place in a prior day, in a prior moment. And in seeing God line it up that way, it gives us added confidence to know he's at work and that we've started to understand his processes and we can see his grace at work even before we understood it was there. There's a term theologians use, prevenient grace. The idea of grace before you knew it was grace. The idea of God at work to get you to where you're supposed to be before you even know that's where you were going. And if you're at all attentive to the Lord's work in your life, you will see prevenient grace all over the place. In the connections that are made, and the opportunities that come along, or in the doors that are closed in your face when you thought that was the right way to go. The way God will direct us down a path according to his will. Luke records one of these moments in his gospel, a very well-known one, in which God is delaying that revelation for a purpose. In the very end of Luke's gospel, on the road to Emmaus, the story in Luke 24, Jesus, after his resurrection, he's walking. Behold, there's two of his disciples leaving Jerusalem after the Passover and all the events of his death and resurrection. Two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And if you go a little further down in verse 28, and they approached the village where they were going and he, Jesus, acted as though he were going further. But they urged him saying, stay with us, for it is getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Then they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. Now, in that way, in the way that scene played out, Jesus made his appearing to these men all the more powerful and all the more instructive by how he carefully timed the revelation of it. What did he teach them by the way he timed that? Well, he taught them a very valuable lesson about expecting the risen Lord to reveal himself first through an examination of the scriptures. That it was through the examination of the scriptures that they were being given insight on who Christ was, not by the sight of him in their presence. When he was ready to reveal it was him, 
It was later that they say to themselves, not isn't it cool he was sitting here with us, but rather they were most impressed by what they were learning in the scriptures as he taught them. That's the message of that event was that Christ will be found today, not by walking with us in a physical form, but by the revealing of him in the scriptures. Now, John concludes his account of Jesus's first ministry visit to Jerusalem by telling us this moment in the temple was not the only sign he did. Verses 23 through 25 to finish the chapter, he says, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Though the Pharisees rejected his authority, we're told, nevertheless, it says many other Jews in the city were believing. In Jesus. And as he encountered the believing crowds, it says he performed signs for them. And we don't know what these miracles were, but it's probably safe to assume he was healing people as a routine. And in the process, he was impressing upon them his supernatural power as God. And despite their belief in him, it says Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. What John means is Jesus was not relying on their belief to protect him or to promote his ministry, or to sustain him. He wasn't collecting friends. He wasn't looking for anyone to be his support. Notice John says Jesus knows all men. He didn't need anyone to testify to him concerning man or to explain the duplicity of the human heart. Jesus knows the human heart all too well. And despite what men said in the moment, despite what they were claiming, despite the fact that they all rallied around him because he did a wonderful sign, Jesus knew the truth behind their words and behind their actions. And although they're adoring crowds now and they're all supportive now, he knows it's not going to be that way all the time. When the religious leaders come up later in the gospel and they offer their their damning praise to Jesus, he understands that it's a trap. He's not a naive man because of the insight of the Holy Spirit in him. He understands that men's hearts aren't true and that they don't always speak in honest ways. And so he doesn't commit himself to anybody. He understands that he can't trust them and he can't depend upon them. Perhaps one of the reasons he's so wary about depending upon the crowd's support is because he knew that some of them were accepting his claims merely on the basis of the miraculous signs that he was doing. Those who embraced him on the basis of a sign or a wonder rather than on faith in the word would be the first to fall away whenever something bad goes wrong around them. Those are the ones who, like the religious leaders here, when they turn up the heat, they're going to be the ones who fall away at a time of testing. Peter would be an example of that. So it's not unique to the unbeliever here. We're talking also about the believer. Those who have been holding on because of an expectation of what's coming. Peter and the other disciples were convinced Jesus was setting up his kingdom then and there to defeat the Romans, to reestablish David on the throne in Jerusalem. And when he dies, they're not at all sure of what's going to come next. The Bible warns us as the church that we will always have those within our ranks who come to Christ in a superficial manner, apart from saving faith, and as well, those who know him truly, but don't know him deeply. They approach him based on some perceived benefit in having that relationship, whether they believe in him because he's going to heal them, or they believe in him because he's going to free them from some kind of oppression or some set of circumstances, or he's going to make them rich, or in some other way, they expect Jesus to give them their best life now. And as a result... They're only this far from falling away because as soon as the best life story doesn't turn out the way they've been promised, they've lost their only reason to care for Jesus, to be a part of the church, to take any time at all in their walk as a Christian. They're not rooted in a belief in which Jesus said is by his word. 
and by his word alone, by faith in that word. And so as Luke records, they fall away. Luke has the famous parable of the four seeds in Luke chapter eight. The second of those two is picturing this kind of situation. Eight thirteen. those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in a time of temptation fall away. In coming chapters, John's going to go back to this dichotomy time and time again. So we've already noticed he's going to be dealing with uh, protagonists who can't understand spiritual dimensions of conversation with Jesus. We're going to see that in the next chapter. Nicodemus is your classic example, one of many. Jesus will be talking about birth. Nicodemus is wondering how he climbs back up in his mother's womb. And Jesus is talking about a spiritual birth. He's also going to show how there are those times when you have true believers who obtain a faith in Christ despite religious training, despite having any formal knowledge of Scripture. And then on the other hand, he's going to have these men who are unbelievers possessing great knowledge of the Scriptures and yet lacking the spiritual insight to recognize the Messiah. Through all of these encounters, you're going to learn a lot about Christ and about the saving nature of faith and a greater insight on the deadness of the human heart and yet also the power of God's word to raise that dead heart. So that's going to set us up nicely for Nicodemus next week. When we do each of the coming chapters, next week is a good example of this. And you can see it starts right away with Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He's a Pharisee, and we'll study him in detail. And you know John 3.16, Jesus' own words. He spoke those words. And he spoke those words to Nicodemus as a part of this experience with him. And it goes for quite a while. He speaks down past that verse, quite a distance, all the way down to verse 21. So as we study these encounters... We're going to study them as a whole encounter, however long they are. In some cases, they'll be quite long, depending on the chapter. This one's not too long. But we want to always look at them as a holistic encounter. We don't want to break them up if we can avoid it. And John's Gospel has this wonderful pattern of vignettes to explain deep spiritual thought. And he uses metaphors that Jesus uses. So water, blindness, birth, bread. And each of these becomes a metaphor for something spiritual, and they play out over a vignette with characters who have a certain position, and usually they're the ones who are blind to the spiritual meaning of what he's saying, and Jesus there giving the spiritual meaning. In the case of bread in John 6, he's saying, you have to eat my body, and the disciples are saying, who could stand for this cannibalism? Because they're just missing the bigger picture, and we're going to go through that each time. And as we do, we'll try to keep it together as a single story. So next week is chapter 3. We'll get through most, if not all, of that chapter as we look at it, or at least the story of Nicodemus. And we'll go from there. Let's go to prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, as always, for the spiritual revelation that comes through your word. I do say, Father, a special request tonight, Father, that those in our lives, our families, our friends, those we hold dear, who we know have yet to see their hearts turn, who have only seen things in in human ways, Father, they've been blind to the truth of the gospel and blind to who Christ is, and they demand proof of the Bible's truth and And all that goes with it, Father, for those in our lives who we care so much for and wish to see true faith, I pray, Father, that what you've shown us tonight, Father, might be an opportunity for you to work in their life, to remind us that you are capable and willing and able to do these things according to your will and according to your providence, that you may have been at work for some period of time in their lives and perhaps have not yet decided it's the proper moment to reveal the truth concerning Scripture in Christ. But, Father, because we know you have the capacity to do it, And you hear our prayers. We put before you the needs of those on our hearts, those we may be naming even now in our hearts, Father. And you would consider that request and bring them the faith that only you can bring. And to do so, Father, by your word as you promise you will. And uh, in the meantime, Father, give us encouragement to know that you're ever-present and working, showing us yourself through signs that would encourage us, knowing as well, Father, that our faith is rested in your word and not in the signs. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.